this. That is a ridiculously over-the-top introduction. <laughs> I actually did walk right through that valley two weeks ago uh, on my way to Mount Everest and back. Thank you so much, Dr. Tennyson. I saw him out there directing traffic. He was out there directing traffic for Welcome Week, and now he's wheeling the pulpit. And uh, we love that guy very, very much. Great to see you guys. A lot of us did a lot of incredible things this summer. First of all, let me say this. I was working on my dissertation last night, writing, editing, but I was watching the greatest volleyball win we have had since I've been here. That was unbelievable! That was unbelievable! We're down two games to McAllister from the MIAC, uh, different conference. And are there any of our volleyball players in here? Could you stand up real quick? That was a great win. Unbelievable. That was crazy. Man, after Buddy talked, I was going, come on, red team. I was sitting at home watching uh, the video, but what a, what a win. Come back and won that 3-2. And the, the, there's so many. I know I start naming teams, and I'm going to get, you didn't name us, you didn't name us. I'll try, I'll try to get to everybody. But I just thought girls volleyball, that was fabulous. And, uh, and the fans, I could hear you screaming on the live stream like crazy for that game last night. So great stuff, great stuff. But this summer, a lot happened, a lot of great stuff. I had the privilege of going all the way to the bottom of Mount Everest, not the top. I went to the bottom of a mountain, climbed all the way to the bottom of a mountain. And it was pretty, pretty cool, but it was second cool to this. This to me was the coolest thing that happened all summer long. Watch the screen. stars of the National Cheerios commercial. Wayne, come on up here, buddy, with your granddaughter. Come here. Come here, Wayne. Bring her up. Bring her up. Bring her up. Bring her up. Bring it up. Come on. Let's give it up for Mr. and Mrs. Cheerio commercial. That, that's crazier than Mount Everest. I'm with you. You're a star. The National Cheerio. How did that happen, Wayne? Um, I belong to an agency. I got an email, said they were looking for uh, a grandfather with a four to five-year-old granddaughter. I emailed back and said, I have one of those. Um, <laughs> and uh, we went to the audition, and we were one of like uh, 50 different uh, pairs of granddaughters, grandfather, most of them, it wasn't their granddaughter, so the girls and grandpas about my age auditioned, and then we were called back, and when we went to the first audition, um, they really liked us, they said, um, the, the gal who auditioned said, if it was up to me, I'd just pick you guys, um, so it was really great, and then we went, uh, then we got the notice, we were chosen, and we went to the filming, and here we are. Well, okay, introduce... So you audition by just eating Cheerios and lots of breakfast, which is cool, but introduce to us the real superstar of that commercial. So this is my granddaughter. Um, and if somebody could get a picture, my wife couldn't be here today because she's in Colorado. It would be great. She would... 
she's a natural right there. She's like that. I feel like I was in the commercial. That was, that's the closest I've gotten. Okay, so her name is what? Jocelyn. Jocelyn. And my, my only daughter's name is what? Jocelyn. That's jo- my daughter's name. Oh, is it? Yes, Jocelyn. Graduate of NCU. Wow. So what did you think about being in the commercial? Did you I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Do you like Cheerios? Yes. Okay, that's impressive. So anyway, Wayne, we're proud of you. That was awesome. Miss Cheerio. That's big time crazy cool right there. All righty, listen, get your Bibles ready. We're going to be in Ruth chapter one, Ruth chapter one. And uh, so get your Bibles ready. Before we do that, I want to make you aware of something coming up September 18 and 19. We are bringing on campus a brand new uh, leadership event that we are creating out of nowhere. We've not been in this space as a university, and we are going to kind of dip our toes in a little bit, and we are convening some world-class thinkers and speakers and writers together for two days. Um, and it is was really the brainchild of uh, Larry Bach, who came to me and said, Let's, what if we convene some people to talk about the now and the next? What's the now look like? in uh, leadership as far as excellence. But what really 20 years from now, what's it gonna look like in the church? What's it gonna look like in youth ministries and in worship and in, and in leadership and churches? And so the now and the next was birthed um, as our first year uh, in-house conference. Now we have not got a lot of room to bring in outside people. We're gonna try to wedge in maybe a max of 200, but between about 100 to 200, People are going to come join us this first year um, here for the conference. But the conference is for our student body, and it's going to combine our spiritual life days. So we have, you guys, we got Reggie Dabbs coming for uh, two days. Eric Samuel Tim is one of the great speakers in this nation. He is here. Rich uh, Wilkerson and his wife Robin, and just a host of leaders, as well as some of the brilliant thinkers and uh, creators Um, on our faculty uh, are also participating in this, and I'll have a chance to share on leadership. It's just a two-day intensive that is open. Now, the outside people coming in, there's a conference fee, but it's free to our students. It's all free to the students. Okay, so, but um, we'll tell you more about this in in the upcoming days. We're still a few weeks out, but we're gonna need help with some volunteers to help host speakers and just serve uh, at the conference, we need a, probably about between about fifty and seventy people that will be that can help us over those two days. Uh, Gina Zarletti uh, is in the lobby, um, and there is a table out there. If you can help us serve for the leadership event, how many remember Kwame Anku? Kwame spoke last year. Kwame's coming back as one of the uh, speakers, and there's there's a bunch of great great voices, men and women that are going to come and join us. Then we're going to just talk about the now and the next. Um, we'll give you more details, more of the schedule in the days ahead, but it's for you. It doesn't cost you anything to be a part of this. 
And, um, but we need some help with some volunteers. So if any of our student leaders want to help us, there's a table out there and you're going to get a chance to rub shoulders maybe with some great, great leaders and to help serve as well. So uh, go out to the table today, find Gina and get that set up if you will. Amen. I loved having our guest yesterday, uh, Buddy Cremines. He did a great job. You responded well. Uh, Roy is still in bed today probably from running around here. Is he still pretty wiped out? Uh, I, and I start calling him Troy yesterday too because uh, he didn't quite get it right. But amen. Take your Bibles if you will. We're going to be in Ruth chapter one. You know, it's crazy about the, the mountain. I did go to the, I climbed to the bottom of a mountain. That's kind of my new way of phrasing this. We got to about 19,000 feet. We were kind of gasping for air. Uh, some guys were bleeding out of their nose and some blood in some other spots. And it was just a tough, tough time. Um, we got uh, elevation sickness. And I really didn't understand that you can get sick from heights like that. And, you know, we talk about vision all the time in dreams and and one of the things I wrote down, I haven't developed it fully, but this idea of vision uh, requires elevation. And you have to literally go to a higher place to see things differently. You can't stay in that same location and have vision. You literally got to go to a different elevation in your life and you got to push your mind and body places that it's never gone before. And that's what happened to me. I'm turning 57 here in a couple weeks and I have never push the body the way I did. And on the way down, it was a little more dangerous. I think I told the incoming freshman this at orientation. I thought I broke my leg. Um, on our second to last day, we had about an hour to go to reach this one village. We've been hiking for about nine hours. And I stepped, I was standing next to Paul Herkman, and I stepped down this little uh, rock and my ankle went into this crack and it popped, went down. I thought I snapped my ankle. We still have eight hours of hiking the next day. So it took us about three hours to go, or two hours to go the next hour. They're kind of helping me like a soldier down the mountain. I've sprained my ankle before, and I knew that this was a nasty sprain, and I knew what was going to happen. It was going to get a big old fat knot on the side of my leg, and it was going to turn purple. And the next day would be impossible to go seven hours down this mountain. It was so steep on these, these weird rocks. So I said, I've kind of screwed up the trip for everybody. So we get to the tea house. And these Nepalese pastors who were with us, they were our guides. He says to me, take off your boot. We're going to do treatment. Now I go, treatment? What kind of treatment are we talking about here? So I take off my boot and I got this big knot on my leg and I put it up on the table. And this guy and his buddy disappear into the woods. We see him go outside through the glass and they disappear into the woods. And they reappear and they got these huge bushes with them. They've cut them down. And quite frankly, it looked like marijuana. It looked like pot. And I said, wait, 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 wait. Is this treatment going to be on YouTube? Are you going to post this treatment here? Because I'm a university president here. What's going to happen? What are we doing here? And he, he, I said, is this going to be some kind of aromatherapy treatment? What's going on? So I'm not a connoisseur of pot. Uh, I can't really distinguish it from 20 feet away. It was green and leafy. And they got near to me, and I realized it wasn't pot. It was nettles. Nettles. Anybody ever grew up in the Pacific Northwest or somewhere where 
You're going through the woods, there's this green bush, and you bump against it, and you get like a thousand stings in the leg. It's called nettles. So these guys brought this out of the mountain. They put my big foot up there with this big knot, and for the next 10 minutes, they beat my leg with nettles. They're just pounding my leg with nettles. I'm crying, laughing. Everybody's there filming this. Uh, I got a billion needle stings, nettles from my kneecap to my toes, and these guys are just beating on my leg. And I'm like, this is insane. So what it was is they said this will stimulate your blood, this will loosen your ligaments, and I literally, I'm crying, it was, it was stinging that bad. And I woke up in the morning, not a pain in my leg, the bruising disappeared, and I had zero pain in my leg from being beaten by nettles. Insane. These guys were some coaches from Cal or Texas. He goes, man, I coach basketball at this big, huge high school. Can you imagine our star player hurts himself at halftime? We're down there, multi-million dollar high school. And I say, get your leg up there. We start beating the guy's leg with nettles. I said, does this work on headaches or whatever? I mean, does it work in other places? So anyway, uh, I brought the practice back to North Central. And uh, so I want you to know if you have a little pain, I got a little game for you here. So... But two of the days when we climbed the mountain, we had what was called acclimation days. Now remember, if leaders are going to see something from a different vantage point, you have to climb. I saw angles of God's creation with the human eye, things I'd never seen. It has to be called vision. I liken it unto vision. Like, I've never seen this before. I'm seeing things that I didn't know even existed, but it required that I changed my elevation. And to change the elevation required a certain amount of sacrifice and pain that I had never experienced in my life. And so we climbed, and the way that you climb up Mount Everest, it takes about nine days to get there to base camp. So you climb for nine days to get the, to the bottom of a mountain. And on day three, on the itinerary, it said it's a rest day. A rest day. Great, because we needed it. We were climbing. It felt like our legs had been run over by trucks. You'd had no appetite. You're just dying. You like literally get to this little tea house. You can barely walk and you just lay down with your pack on and your boots on and you just literally fall asleep on the concrete. You're that tired. They wake you up and try to get a little food into you. But I knew the next day was acclimation day. You know what acclimation day is? We got to 12,000 feet and we had to wake up at seven in the morning and climb to 16,000 feet, and then come back down. Took, it, took, it took eight and a half hours. Rest day was horrific. You had to climb up 4,000 feet. You're going, <laughs> guy's got blood coming out of his nose. <laughs> and we get there, and then we go back and sleep in the same spot that night. You talk about discouraging. Climb high, sleep low. And then we did that on when we got to 15,000, we had to climb to 18,000 and then come back and sleep in the same spot. Ultimately, then we got almost to 19,000 feet, which is base camp, which is a rock. And you basically climb to the end of the year, touch a rock, and then walk home and say, hey, I did it. But I saw Mount Everest. I saw the Himalayas. I've showed you some of the pictures. But you cannot... 
You cannot have a change of vision without elevation, and you cannot succeed at elevation without pushing yourself. Because you, one thing about mountains, folks, is I've never met a single person who faked their way to the top of a mountain. You can't fake your way to a mountaintop. You can fake your way through valleys. You can fake your way through a lot of things. You cannot fake your way to the top of a mountain. So when I got up there, I also learned that leaders have to live with less oxygen. If you're going to have a new vision, you have to change your elevation. Elevation means that a leader has to live with less oxygen, which means there's some privileges and there's some freedoms that you have down below when you see everything like everybody else sees it. But if you're going to have this new vantage point, and really, honestly, coming to NCU for you, whether it's your first year of the climb, your, third, your second, third, or fourth, you're reaching new spots of elevation. And there's some elevation sickness, and there is some acclimation issues going on right off the bat. There's some people that want to turn around. I wanted to turn around on day two, my day of doubt. I go, what have I got myself into? Uh, we didn't train hard enough for this. This is harder than I thought. And yet that group of community, that 12 of us, somehow pulled each other up this, this mountain. It was an unbelievable experience. And so, yes, you got to change elevation if you want vision. And you got to live with a little bit less oxygen. And there's some nausea that is natural to that level of leadership and that level of vision. But I'm telling you, once you're there, the euphoria is inexplicable to go to the ends of the earth, to some place that's uninhabitable, even if it's just to touch the rock, get the selfie or whatever it is, and then walk back and then talk about it for the rest of your life. And so I want to encourage you to, to if you're praying, you know, I need new vision, I want vision in my life. It's not going to come to you from the same space that you are in. There has to be a change of your vantage point in order for vision. I want to talk about Ruth for just a minute. I've probably preached from the book of Ruth as much as I have the book of Romans. I've probably preached this book, different angles. I, I shared two years ago uh, this series of scriptures, but I got some brand new things that the Lord's been depositing into my heart from the book of Ruth. I want to give it to you uh, very quickly. If we could put up on the screen, I'm going to give you some verses. This is beginning at verse 20 through 22. It says, don't call me Naomi. Really, the book of Ruth is really about this lady named Naomi. And Naomi is a woman whose name means delight, but she's about to go through a name change, an identity change midlife. Not in her childhood, not her adolescence, but well into her adult life, she's about to change her name, literally go through a legal social name change. She said, don't call me by the name of my birth. She responded. Instead, and I love what Buddy did yesterday. When you see the capitalized word, I'll say it. Don't uh, call me. Her new name is what? Mara. Mara. For the Almighty has made my life, made life very bitter for me. God has screwed up my life. Now, do you know how low you got to go to do the math and blame God for your adult life? I, I blamed God when I was a kid, but as an adult, I pretty much have realized that I'm the result of my own screw-ups. But I have come across people who've done the math and they cannot reconcile the events of their adult life and they're left with one conclusion. Their creator has somehow flawed their design. And they go through this identity change, this social change, no longer call me delightful, call me bitter. That's my new name. For the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. What, what is she talking about? If you were to read chapter one, you find out that her husband, in a time of famine, passed away. Uh, she had two sons. 
The two sons were not yet married, or I'm sorry, they'd just gotten married, but had not produced any grandkids. So her husband's dead, but she has her son in, her sons, who are really her social safety net uh, in that time. And then lo and behold, before the boys could give birth to any kids, one was married to Ruth, the other was married to Orpah, not Oprah, but Orpah. Both of the sons die, so all three men in her life are eradicated. Her entire future safety net, her entire purpose and meaning has vanished. The husband died first, and then it says 10 years later, her boys died. So then Naomi does the math, and she encourages her two daughters-in-law to leave. Uh, she said, then Elimelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women, uh, one Orpah, the other Ruth. And then it just says, 10 years later, both of the boys died and left her with no sons and no husband. Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord blessed the people of Judah by giving them good crops. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland with their two daughters. In-law, she set out from that place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her two daughters, Go back to your own mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you in, uh, for your kindness uh, to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Go on and write a new chapter for your life. This ship has sailed. There's no hope here. There's no love here. There's no meaning here. Go on and build a new life. So this widow is telling these two young widows, go, go make a life for yourself. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and cried. No, they said. So both Orpah and Ruth said, we're not leaving. We're not taking the plan. We're going to stay with you. So then Naomi doubles down on her pain and says to the women who say, we want to go with you. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, may, my, may, uh, no my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if, I, if it was possible and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, what? You're going to wait for them to grow up? And refuse to marry someone else? Right. No, of course not, my daughters. Things are, are far more bitter for me than you know. Because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together. And Orpah kissed the mother-in-law and said, See ya. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to uh, her her. Uh, to her, your sister-in-law's gone back to her people and her gods. You should do the same. So Naomi doubles down on her pain. The women are trying to love her, but the pain pushing back is colliding with the love that's pressing in. So love and pain collide. That's the world that we live in right now. That's the world we all carry, this collision between pain and love. And at some point, this collision becomes volatile in communities, in families, in people's relationships. 
where someone's trying to love that person in their pain, but the pain inside pushes back against the love that's pressing in. And something has to give. Orpah gave it one shot. That's like a lot of churches in America. They give it a shot. Hey, I tried to love you. I tried reconciliation. I tried to help. Obviously, you don't want it. I gave it a shot. I'm out of here. Don't ever tell me I didn't try. But the Lord has not called us to try it once. Okay, we don't love the poor once. We don't try to reconcile once. We don't give it one shot, one sermon, one prayer. Orpah did. <coughs> Sadly, she's like many churches in the United States. I gave it a shot. We tried. I'm out of here. Bye. Ruth, though, doubles down on love. And she said, okay, you want to fight pain versus love? Here we go. And so Naomi says, go back. My name is bitterness. There's no life here. I've done the math. God's against me. I cannot reconcile all this theologically. Go back and get a life. I want to live isolated. I just want to be a spinster. I just want to die alone. Get out of my life. Ever had a friend like that? You're trying to love them? And all they do is get back in your mug and try to push you away and reject the love you're offering them? And you realize we got a fight going on. And it's the fight between love and pain. So what happened is Ruth doubles down. Don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I'll live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I'm going to die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. And here's the verse. When Naomi, when Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped asking her to leave. At some point, the love has to be more powerful than the pain. At some point, when love and pain fight with one another, when pain sees the determination of the gospel, when pain sees the determination of the kingdom, trust me, friends, pain will kneel to love. But it won't kneel to love after one shot. It's going to raise its voice. It's going to manifest. And pain is real. But I'm telling you, love is more powerful than pain. And she said, I'm going to go where you go. Very quickly, here we go. I've only got about two minutes. Naomi then travels to Bethlehem. So the two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited for their arrival. Is it really Naomi, the women asked. They had heard her story. Very few people have a husband die and their two adult sons die. So her pain made her famous. Her pain made her famous. Don't let your pain make you famous. Well, it's very easy to live in the fame of your pain. And your story, they'd heard about her, and sometimes any attention is wonderful attention. We've heard about your crazy life story. And she said, yeah. So she was in a new place called Bethlehem, but she herself was not new. Just because you're in a new place doesn't mean you're a new person. You're in a new place called North Central. Doesn't mean you're new. Doesn't mean I'm new. 
because Naomi in the new place still proclaims her old pain. She says, don't call me Naomi. She's already in Bethlehem. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? She's in a new place, but she's still the old person. Not transformed yet. Geography doesn't transform you, doesn't transform me. I could be on Mount Everest in this place. I could be in my apartment. I could be in the library trying to do my paper. The new place the new season doesn't automatically create the new person. So she's still living in it. And she's using her platform to preach her pain. Now, I agree 100% with Buddy yesterday. Psalms is the pouring out of my pain in the context of God's kingdom to heal. Let's get our musician to pop up. We got 120 seconds. Here we go. Don't use your platform in life just to preach your pain. Okay, just because you're in a new season, new place, new start doesn't mean you're a new person yet. Okay, so she was using her platform for pain. So here's where this thing culminates. Ruth walks with this woman to Bethlehem. I love what it says. Put the verse back up there. It says here, okay, keep it up there. Mar, the Almighty has made my life bitter. I went away full. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the what? Beginning of the barley harvest. Look at this. That's the last verse in chapter one. Chapter one is like the book of Job. Outside of the book of Job, it's probably the most catastrophic series of stories that leaves you kind of speechless that somebody could go through this kind of chaos and survive. And you almost don't even blame her. And yet at the very end of the chapter, the Lord slips in a new beginning. He just slips it right under the door. Beginning. The worst story, the worst chapter outside of Job in the Bible, it ends with a beginning. And that's the grace of God. He always is helping people find footing with a new start, even in the darkest story. So North Central is a beginning for you. It's giving you a shot to not simply be in a new place, but to become a brand new person in the new place. Don't spend the rest of your life preaching your pain. Okay? You preach redemption. Your pain is the testimony that triggers hope in other people, not despair. You can't just say, hey, call me Mara. My life's screwed, jacked up. God's against me. That's my story. That's my new identity. I lead with that in every setting. I lead with my bitterness and my pain instead of leading with your testimony. So here's how the whole thing ends. As you know, Ruth is coached by Naomi on winning the heart of Boaz and she gets married again. And when the baby's born in chapter four, here's where it ends. Put it up there if you can, the verse. So Boaz took Ruth into his home and she became his wife when he slept with her because that's what husbands and wives do, folks. The Lord enabled her to be pregnant. She gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, these are Naomi's homies. These are her friends. These old ladies are going, praise the Lord. They see this lady with the baby, kind of grandma. 
Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been what? Better. Then seven sons? I am a dude, so I keep a journal. I guess diaries are journals. So here's my journal. I wrote in my journal when I was 16 about the aspirations of my life. Just like Naomi probably said, I want to get married one day, have two sons. And then it was all taken from her. And she loses it. She lost the hope and the dreams that were in her diary. But she allowed all of that life to pass through grace and through the Lord and the kingdom. And she was trying to tell her story before God was finished with her story. Now watch this. It's very easy to preach our pain and we start telling our story while God is still writing our story. So be careful. Don't describe your life yet as a complete finished volume as a story that's complete. My name's Mara. I already got it figured out the rest of my life. I am bitterness. God's against me. I've dialed it in. That's who I am. Really? No, God is still writing my story, your story. And when God wrote her full story, watch this. What God did with her pain and her losses ended up being better than her dreams. Now watch this. We, have all, we all have dreams for our life. And then there's losses. Things are taken from us. The enemy attacks. Life circumstances come. It could be graphic like this story. Death. We think our dreams are shot. Do you know when you pass all that loss through the Lord, what he ends up doing is better, better than seven sons. Better than what you dreamed for your own self. What God ends up doing with your life if you give him time to tell and write the whole story instead of closing the book early on your life. Give God a shot. Give grace a chance. Give this moment a chance. Give Bethlehem a chance. Give the new place and the new you a chance to unfold a story that you could never even dream up for yourself. I ask people all the time in their 50s, is your life turned out better than you thought or worse than you thought? I come across a lot of Maras who go, my life sucks. My life is worse than it's ever been. My life never. Then I come across people who lost a lot of stuff, but they yielded all that to the Lord. And what the Lord ends up doing in the last chapter is a better life than the one you dreamed for yourself. So don't Finish your story before God is, hasn't even begun to write it. You have no idea. I, I know some of you brought a lot of loss here. Some of you are confused about theology and God and where you fit in all of this. It's just chapter one. It's just chapter one. The Lord's going to walk with you the way Ruth walked with you. We're going to walk with you the way Ruth walked with you. And when God is all finished with this, we're going to look back and say, wow, check it out. Is this not better than seven sons? Let's all stand together. Lord, we love you today. We thank you today, Jesus. Lord, I just woke up today thinking about my Godfidence. Lord, that message yesterday was one of the best I ever heard. Father, I thank you today, Jesus, for this room. Thank you for this 
phenomenal student body, Lord, that everyone who visits here says, even as our guests from Washington, D.C. and New York yesterday told me, I've never been in a Christian university like that in my entire life. Never been in a setting like this. But Lord, we need more than the new setting, God. I can be the old person in the new place. Lord, help us to turn our pain, God, into teaching, our pain into a story of redemption, Lord. Lord, I pray my identity is not my pain. It's not my loss. That's not my name. It's simply things that have happened in my life. But I'm your child. My name is Naomi. I am God's delight. I am not man's bitterness. So Lord, just speak a word deep into our souls on this Wednesday. Lord, as we go into a time of prayer for this next 50 minutes, Lord, for those who can stay, I just pray be rich. For those who need to go now, Lord, I pray blessing upon their life. Help them carry this in their heart forever, Lord. Forget the sermon. Forget the preacher. Don't ever forget the story from the Bible. In Jesus' name. God bless you guys. Hey, guys, we're going to go till 1230 for whoever can stay. We just pray in here and have a time of fasting. You are welcome to stay and be a part of this. I know faculty has many meetings. Any of the faculty that can stay for a little bit can be up front to pray. But let's just turn this room into a prayer room, friends, for the next little bit. God bless everybody.